Glad it wasn't mine. So we, we are coming to a new section uh, in our study of Romans. And uh, these next seven verses give us instructions about how we as Christians should relate to governing authorities. So once you've heard the gospel and you've believed on Christ and you've become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, how should you now relate to your local mayor, to police officers, to city inspectors that keep making you jump through hoops so you can get your building built? Are we bound by the policies and the laws set in place by our state legislators, by our federal leaders? Now that we have God as our Father, now that we know that His court is the Supreme Court overall, must we still obey the decisions of the courts of this land? Uh, questions about how Christians should relate to government abound. Should Christians vote? Should Christians run for public office? Should we be loud, vocal, active participants in politics? Or should we leave that to others and just focus on sharing the gospel? Should we pay taxes? Even when we know that those taxes are going to be used for some pretty immoral and ungodly things. Should Christians, as some have argued in the past, try to set up their own nations with their own governments? Uh, I heard recently that there's a group in Texas that has actively purchased an island because they are looking to establish their own Christian country. Is it ever appropriate for Christians to revolt against a government? Can we righteously participate in a revolution the way many did during the founding of this country? Is it permissible for Christians to participate in the military and to go to war on behalf of a nation? Now that we have a higher citizenship, now that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the better kingdom, the kingdom that's going to far outlast every earthly kingdom, how now do we relate to the earthly kingdom in which we find ourselves? That's what these verses deal with. So let's, let's read them first. So beginning in verse 1, Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. This is the very word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. 
For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, it is interesting to me how many Christian thinkers and writers have suggested that this part of the book of Romans doesn't actually belong here. Uh, That is, they think that someone other than Paul wrote these verses and stuck them in many, many decades, even centuries later. Uh, Practically, unless these verses were added in very, very early, like very soon after Paul wrote the letter, it's hard to see how they could have been inserted into the letter and we not know about it. Um, Our earliest manuscript of the book of Romans that we have today is from around 325 A.D. Okay? And it includes Romans 13. But well before that document, we have older writings of church fathers who are quoting from their copies of the book of Romans. Uh, Polycarp sat under the apostle John himself. And when he was about to be martyred and he was on trial, he declared that Christians were taught to give honor to the powers and authorities ordained by God. And most agree that when he is giving that defense, the lions ready to, to, to go at him, the fire being stoked to burn him, that he is quoting from Romans 13. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, all of these early church leaders quote these verses... As if they are a part of Romans 13, the Romans 13 they had at the time. Not only that, but this particular letter was being sent to the church in Rome. That is, this letter in your New Testament was sent to the capital of the empire. And all roads led to Rome. Uh, Perhaps more than any other letter, we think that this letter was copied and sent to many, many different churches all throughout the Roman Empire. As people came forth, back and forth from their hometowns to Rome to do business. So if someone had tried to add something to this letter, more than likely it would have been discovered pretty quickly as not being part of Paul's original. So it's unlikely that these verses were written later and inserted in. So then why do people think that? Well, they think it because it's not easy to see at first how these verses connect to what Paul was just talking about. Remember, Paul didn't write chapter 12 and then stop and then write chapter 13 with chapter numbers. Chapter numbers didn't come till 1,400 years after Paul wrote this. Okay? So people have been reading chapter 12. It ends with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then suddenly it's into talking about government. And these folks point out that if you take out the seven verses we just read, if, if you just remove... Romans 13, 1 through 7, okay, from your Bible, and you go from chapter 12, verse 21 to Romans 13, verse 8, it actually flows really nicely, right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Uh, Up to this point in Romans 12, Paul has been teaching us how to love each other, right? With brotherly love. Let love be genuine. Bless those who persecute you. Outdo one another in showing honor. And now, chapter 13, verse 8, he seems to be continuing to talk about what it looks like to love. 
And so folks say it doesn't make sense that right in the middle of all this talk about how to love each other in the Christian life, he suddenly writes these seven verses about government. Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I completely disagree with that argument. Uh, I actually think the verses fit perfectly. Uh, There are so many places where you can tell that this was just the logical thinking of Paul as he goes from one part of what he's saying to the next. I have full and complete confidence that Romans 13, 1 through 7 belongs in the word of God, that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit for our good, and that it was part of Paul's original letter to the Romans. Uh, For example, note verses 6 and 7 of Romans 13. Verses 6 and 7. They're talking about paying taxes. Pay to all. This is verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. How does verse 8 begin? Still talking about owing, right? Owe no one anything except to love each other. So yes, Paul is picking back up on his main theme of love, but he's also continuing what he's just been talking about, debt, and giving honor to whom honor is due and taxes to whom taxes are due. But since we're just starting out in our study of these verses, let me show you four connections. Four connections that help us understand why Paul goes from what he's been talking about in Romans 12 to what we have here in Romans 13. So number one... Paul has just been talking about life in Christ's church, in Christ's kingdom. And so it makes sense that the question would arise, well, how should Christians live in this earthly kingdom? And that's all the more since he is writing to Christians living in Rome, the capital city of the great empire. Politics and government would have been at the center of these people's lives perhaps more than anyone else at the time. And so for them, it made a lot of sense that just as he's going to talk to them about here's how things should look in the kingdom of Christ, he's then going to say, here's what it looks like in the kingdom of Rome. Second, notice that there is a focus at the end of Romans 12 on being peaceable. Christians are to be a people who cherish peace. We're to work for peace. We're to strive for peace. But one of the great pressures on these early Christians especially these Roman Christians, was the threat of conflict with authorities. Remember, the new rising religion throughout the entire Roman Empire was emperor worship. Subjects of the empire were required to come and show their homage and their allegiance to the emperor by offering up worship to him. This emperor cult would end up getting lots of Christians in trouble all over the empire. But you can imagine the pressure on these Christians living there in Rome, the center of this empire cult where the emperor himself lived. And so in all of this talk that Paul's been doing in Romans 12 about striving for peace, being a people of peace, I can see why Paul would have been thinking, I need to say something about how these Christians should relate to these governing authorities. In their case, I do think he was thinking particularly about the Roman religious officials, Roman law enforcement, with whom these Christians would have run-ins as they refused to obey, for example, the worship of the emperor. He was also likely thinking about taxes. 
Should these Roman Christians raise a ruckus about not financially supporting the immorality of Rome through their taxes, or should they just pay their taxes and keep the peace? And so we see that connection between Romans 12 and Romans 13, that theme of being peaceful. Third, we also see the connection of overcoming evil with good. The end of Romans 12 was about this very thing. How do you respond when people do you wrong? How do you respond when people harm you in some way? And in Romans 12, it was your fellow Christians. How do you respond when your brother or sister in Christ does you wrong? But I'm also sure that that as he's talking about that, he's feeling for these Christians in Rome, those aren't the main people they're experiencing suffering from. They're experiencing suffering and persecution, not just from inside the church, but especially from outside the church. And so in many ways, Romans 13, 1 through 7, is Paul explaining how the principle he just laid down at the end of Romans 12, overcome evil with good, how that applies to their lives under human governments. And then fourth, finally, I think there's a clear connection between what Paul has just said in Romans 12, 19, and where he goes in these seven verses. So look at Romans 12, 19. Romans 12, 19. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We saw there that we are not to seek vengeance ourselves when we're wronged. We are not to seek revenge. We're to leave all vengeance to God. He will make sure that justice is done. Ultimately, every sin is a transgression of God's law. Every sin is a dishonoring of God's name. He will make it right. But that doesn't mean he's always going to wait till the day of judgment. Sometimes God goes ahead and brings justice to bear on a person in this life. And one instrument that God uses to bring justice upon a person is the instrument of human government. Look at Romans 13, beginning of verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 13. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And we'll dig into that more and explain that in a couple of weeks. So here are four connections that show that these seven verses really are just just stemming forth from exactly the same themes Paul has been talking about. This is the Holy Spirit working through the Apostle Paul in his thinking, in his writing, to to bring us these truths that really are from the mind of God himself. And so we need to treat these verses with divine authority. Now, we're going to study these verses under several headings. My first heading was, these verses are scripture, just to make sure you knew that. So that's our first heading. Our second heading, we need this teaching. We need this teaching about how we're to relate to government. How much pain and how much trouble we would have been spared and Christians would have been spared in the world if they had paid attention to these verses. Oh, please understand, there's been lots of suffering for Christians who understood these verses under unjust governments and unjust persecution. 
But there have also been times when Christians did not pay attention to these verses and created much pain and much suffering for themselves. And so these verses are good for us. I've already explained why the Christians in Rome needed this teaching. I mean, here they are in the capital of the empire, right? Uh, There's the the temples to all of the Roman gods sitting up on the hill over there. There's the the Senate with all their ungodly ways on the hill over there. There's Nero and his palace on this hill over here and and the hustle and bustle of it all. And and they're like, how do we follow Jesus now in this place? Well, all of these governmental things happening around us, they needed this teaching. For three centuries after Paul wrote this, Christians throughout the Roman Empire would be experiencing wave after wave of persecution and suffering at the hands of governing authorities. There was going to be a constant temptation for the next three centuries for Christians to be troublemakers, for Christians to hate the government, for Christians to despise those in government positions because of the way that they would feed them to the lions, put them in prison, keep them from getting jobs, make them pay a much higher tax than other people. Uh, As our own nation becomes increasingly secular and hostile to Christianity, we may face that same temptation. Uh, But remember, the situation of the early church changed. So for three centuries, you've got all of this persecution. You've got all of these governing officials who are attacking the church. And then Christians were showing great courage in the face of the lions, and in the face of being burned at the stake. And as they did, more and more Romans began to feel sympathy for the Christians. And they began to wonder, where does this courage come from? See how the Christians love each other, we're told that they said. We know from ancient documents that the Christians were extraordinary in their love for unbelievers. That when the Roman government would not help people bury their dead, it was often Christians who would come along unbelievers and help them bury their dead. That one act, by the way, became, many scholars think, one of the central things God used to help cause many, many people to consider the gospel and be saved. That Christians were helping unbelievers bury their dead. So by the time we get to Emperor Constantine, Christianity has spread like wildfire, and we find Emperor Constantine himself declaring himself a Christian. It's a very interesting story. We won't go into it tonight. But think about how radical this change is. The same government that once sanctioned the killing of Christians has come so far that it is now declaring that it's going to rule in the name of Christ. The Roman Empire became a Christian empire with churches being supported by the state. So now the same tax dollars that Christians used to say, I don't know if I should be paying these taxes because these taxes are going to go help support the, the worship of that foreign god. Now suddenly the money that people are giving in taxes are going to support churches. Now was that a good thing? That's the kind of thing they had to think through. The Roman Empire became a Christian empire. Some people even began to get the idea that the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Rome were the same kingdom. That church and state were the same thing. The Roman Empire was the church, the kingdom of Christ, and the kingdom of Rome. Now, in a Christian Rome, under Christian rulers, what does it look like for Christians to live under that government? Very different question. When the Roman Empire finally crumbled, 
There was no major empire that took its place, but there was actually one that developed, the Holy Roman Empire. The Roman Catholic Church, under the leadership of the Pope, began to own great land and to wield great power. The kings and queens of many nations had to submit to the authority of the Pope because the Pope began to command great armies. In fact, at the Pope's word, thousands upon thousands of men would take up arms in whatever cause he decreed. So think about what happened on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., when Pope Leo II crowned Charlemagne, Holy Roman Emperor. Here is the church appointing the political leaders. Okay? This, this would be like if the Pope got to declare who's president of the United States. Okay? Here is the Pope declaring, here's who's going to lead over here, and who's who, how I'm going to allow over here. Uh, kings and queens, you didn't get to be king and queen if the Pope didn't support you, because he could wield the opinions of the people against you. So now we enter a time of history where, at least throughout Europe, the church was on top, and the state was in many ways under the sway and the control of the church, the Holy Roman Empire, which was not holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. But that's what we call it. Okay. So is, is that how it ought to be? Should the church and the state be the same thing as it was in the days of Constantine? Should the church be in control and then, and then presidents and political leaders get chosen by the church? Well, then comes a fellow named Erastus. E-R-A-S-T-U-S. Erastus, not Erasmus. That's a totally different fellow. This is Erastus. Erastus taught, yeah, there should be a connection between the church and the state, but it should be the opposite of what I just described. He was a follower of the reformer Ulrich Zwingli. He said the state should be the main power and that the state should have power over the church so that the church becomes one branch of the state. So rather than the pope or the head of the church choosing political leaders, the political leaders get to choose who rules over the church and who leads in the church. This is how it is in England, or how it was, and at least in form still is. The Queen of England rules over England, and one aspect of her rule is that she also rules over the church. She is the head of the Church of England. She has a political office, but she's also considered to be the defender of the faith. And under her, off under her office, church officers are appointed for the Church of England. And it's actually still that way, at least in form, in many nations today. There's the Church of Denmark, the Church of Iceland, the Church of Norway, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland, the Church of Scotland. These are all nations where there are state churches. And the state has the power to make decisions and appointments. The state gets to veto decisions that the church makes. This is called, by the way, this view is called, after Erastus, Erastianism. So are you an Erastian? Do you think that the state should determine how things go for the church? Imagine if our political leaders here in America 
were the ones who got to determine what doctrines were truly biblical, who could be pastors, what qualifications pastors needed to be pastors, what churches should and should not do in worship. Imagine the Senate or the House of Representatives taking votes on those kinds of things. Or the president appointing a cabinet minister to handle the issues of churches in America. Uh, Many Christians have lived in exactly those kind of circumstances. They needed Romans 13. They needed to think through, what does it look like to live under this kind of government? And then came separatists. Think about the pilgrims who first came to this land. They were separatists. They believed that church and state should be separated from one another. That they ought not to be aligned. They argued it was wrong for churches to use civil power for religious purposes... And they argued that it was wrong for civil powers to be stepping into the area of religious matters. They wanted to keep church and state separate from one another. Hence, they were called separatists. Why does this matter to us? It matters because we see strains of each one of these ideas in American Christianity today. There are some in the United States who treat the United States as if the United States is the kingdom of Christ. As if to be an American is almost the same thing as being a Christian. As goes the United States, as goes the kingdom of Christ. They they mix church and state all together as if our nation is the chosen nation, as if being an American, being a Christian, they're one And the same. That view is declining in our day. It used to be more prominent than it is now, but you still find strains of it. There are others who seem to lean this way in America. They want to see the state have some control and power and authority over the church and to use civil power to support the church. Um... When people argue that the state should mandate Christian prayer in government schools, right? Not not Islamic prayers, not Buddhist prayers, only Christian prayers to the Christian God in government schools. That's that's stepping towards Erastianism, the state establishing the church. Uh, And then there are those who want the government and the state to be as separate from each other as possible. State You stay in your sphere, okay? Provide for the public defense, you know, that kind of thing. Church, you stay in your sphere. Separatists. So what's the right approach? What is the right form of government? And whatever the right form of government is, how do you live under the government you're in? Right? We don't always get to pick and choose what our government looks like. So so how do you live as a Christian in whatever government you find yourself in? And then there's another reason why I think we need this teaching. I have increasingly seen a rise in recent years of Christians becoming hostile towards governing authorities. Um, I think the most explicit moment of this was back when the Black Lives Matter movement was becoming popular. And one of their slogans was abolish the police. 
You remember that? People were ch chanting, abolish the police. And there were some Christians who were genuinely and perhaps rightly concerned about black men wrongly gunned down by police officers who were joining in that mantra, that slogan, abolish the police. Is that something that Christians should say? And so we need this teaching. Okay, next heading. Still with me? Okay, here we go. Thank you. Um, our next heading. All governments or just good governments? Okay? All governments or just good governments? This morning, my headings were so nice. Did y'all notice that? All A's, right? Angelic anthem. Not today. Not tonight. So. Uh, all governments are only good governments. Uh, as we approach these verses, everything is shaped by where you fall on this question. Throughout history, there have been many who argued that Paul's message in these seven verses only applies to Christians living under good governments. Uh, look at this message in verse 1. Verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I read at least one writer who said that this verse only calls us to submit to those governments instituted by God. And he said, most governments I know are instituted by Satan. He said, as I look around, I see governments persecuting the children of God. I see governments that are doing harm to Christians. They're instituted by Satan. Paul wouldn't have us submit to those governments. These verses are only about how to submit when you're under a good government. These people often point out that the Roman government over him when he writes this were the very people that were going to put him in prison. This is the Roman government that would one day take his head off. Okay? Emperor Nero was a wicked and deranged man and he was emperor when this letter was written. Many believe it was Nero who caused the great fire that burnt down so much of Rome and then who blamed that fire on the followers of Christ and therefore used that as justification for so many Christians being killed in the city of Rome. And these people say, Paul is not saying to submit to a government like that. Paul's only saying to submit to good governments, godly governments, governments instituted by God. Others have said it this way. They've said this passage simply gives us a description of what a good government looks like. Therefore, when it calls Christians to submit, it's only in the context of those good governments. This passage says nothing at all about how we're supposed to respond under a bad government. This passage only tells us how to respond when a government is honoring the true God. So that's the argument that is sometimes made. I want to be clear that that is not the right reading of this passage. And if you go into this passage reading it that way, you will make mush of it. It will not work. It will not help you. It will not make sense if you try and read the passage that way. Paul does not say some governments are instituted by God. Some governments are instituted by Satan. No, he says there is no authority except from God. Do you see that? See it in the verse, verse 1, there is no authority except from God, none. He says that those that exist, all authorities, have been instituted by God. Nero's authority, 
a God-given authority. Governor Roy Cooper's authority, not comparing him to Nero, okay, a, a God-given authority. President Trump's authority, a God-given, God-granted authority. God gives authority to various kinds of people for a time, and then he moves them on and gives that authority to someone else. But it's always God who, in his way, at his pleasure, for his purposes, gives authority to whom he will, and there is no authority other than that which God gives. Because ultimately, all authority is God's. All authority that belongs to human beings is a designated, delegated authority under God's authority. Moreover, it isn't just here in Romans 13 that Christians are called to submit to government. We find this as a common theme throughout the New Testament. So when Paul writes to Timothy... Uh, to tell Timothy what he's to teach the Christians in Ephesus. He says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What I find most amazing about that passage is that Paul is giving Timothy instructions about how to lead the church in Ephesus. And he says, this principle is first of all. First of all, Timothy, when the Christians in Ephesus come together and you stand before them and it's time to teach them, they should pray. And here's what I want to tell them. They should pray for kings. They should pray for those in high positions. They should pray for government policies that will allow Christians to lead quiet, godly lives. Mount Herman, we need to do better at this. We're so quick to get together and complain about the government. <laughs> We're so quick to get together and to, to mumble and groan and say, Oh, why can't they get this government back up and running again? Or why won't they just build the wall? Or why won't they? And, you know, we just complain and groan. And, 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 and Paul said, First of all, pray. Whether you're lead, living under a church separated from state government, whether the church is in control of the state, whether the state is in control of the church, whether you're saved, it doesn't matter. Whoever's in charge, pray for them. Lift them up before God. For the gospel's sake, for the salvation of sinners, for the protection of God's people, we should pray for governing authorities. Uh, when Paul wrote to Titus, he gave instructions to him about how Christians on the island of Crete were to live. By the way, these Christians were also living under the Roman Empire. Wicked, crazy Nero was their emperor too. And Paul did not say, that Roman government is a bad government. You do not need to submit to them. Let's rebel. That's not what Paul said. Paul told Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Even under Nero, be submissive, be obedient. And then finally, listen to these words from the Apostle Peter. They're very similar to what we hear from Paul in this passage, and yet they're very clearly spoken to Christians living under bad government. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor, the ungodly, pagan, crazy emperor. Honor him, Peter said. Yes, there are times when civil disobedience is required, but the general message of the New Testament about how Christians are to relate to whatever government they find themselves under is one of submission. Our default position should be that we respect the authority of government upon us, we see God's hand in that authority, and therefore we submit not just to good governments, to all governments. We respect when our political party is in power, and we also submit when the other political party is in power. We submit when the politicians are voting the way we want them to vote and putting the laws that we want to see in place in place. And we submit when they're doing the opposite and doing what we wish they wouldn't do. Last heading, and we're not going to finish tonight on this heading. The separation of church and state. The separation of church and state. We will not read this passage correctly if we think that it is teaching some sort of alliance between the church and the state. When Paul wrote this, there was no alliance between the state of Rome, the Roman Empire, and the church. In fact, when Paul wrote this, the Roman Empire was just beginning to hear about this little group of people called Christians and this new religion called Christianity. And the response of the Roman Empire was not positive. Christians were not trying to make the empire a Christian empire. They were not trying to overthrow the emperor and establish some new Christian kingdom. When Paul wrote this, Christians were a tiny, tiny minority in a massive empire, and they were just trying to survive. They were just trying to live faithful lives in the midst of pressure and persecution. I am convinced that the historic Baptist position is the right position when it comes to right government. You see, Baptists have been separatists from the very beginning. As far back as you go in history, you will find Baptists have been leaders in calling for church and state to be separate. Why? Well, because it never seemed to matter which religious group was in power, the Baptists were always being hunted down. Even when it was the Reformers that were in power, even when it was the Presbyterians that were in power, Baptists always seemed to be labeled as enemies to the state. We were always being punished for our beliefs when religious people were in civil power. Uh, our refusal to baptize infants was seen as a threat to the state. And so even very godly men made the error of using civil power to track down Baptists, to imprison Baptists, and even to kill them. So from the very beginning in Baptist DNA, there has been, it's not a good idea to give Christians on a religious mission, the power of the sword that belongs to the state. Because that sword usually ends up at our throat. Uh, one of the very first English Baptists was a guy named Thomas Helways. Um, spelled like this. H-E-L-W-Y-S. Thomas Helways. He said this. For men's religion to God 
is between God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and man. Let them be heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. This is made evident by our Lord, the King, in the Scriptures. So notice what Thomas Helwes was saying here in the 1600s. He was saying that when a king or a civil ruler begins to get involved in religious matters and says, you must believe this or you must not believe that, he is stepping into a place that belongs to God alone. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And only God can truly judge you for what you believe or don't believe. When a civil magistrate starts deciding what people should or shouldn't believe, that civil person is taking on a role that God has not given to them. And Helway says that that is evident in the scriptures. Uh, one of my favorite early Baptists was a guy named Isaac Bacchus. Bacchus, B-A-C-K-U-S. Isaac Bacchus. Uh, he campaigned against the state-established churches in the New England colonies. Remember, most of the American colonies did not start out as separatists. Most of the American, American colonies start out the same way England had taught them. That is, there was a state-established church. So, for example, if you lived in Massachusetts, Connecticut, or New Hampshire, as one of their founding, you know, in, in their early colonies... The established church, the state church, was the congregational church. And if you didn't show up at church on Sunday at the congregational church, you could be fined. You could have taxes levied against you. You could be put sometimes in jail for failing to attend your local congregational church on Sunday. In the state of Virginia, the state in the colony of Virginia, the Church of England was the official state church. And again, you could be fined, you could be put in jail if you did not attend, without good reason, especially in the early days of the colony, the Church of England. Isaac Bacchus was an early Baptist in the colonies. He called for an end to this practice. He said religious matters must be separated from the jurisdiction of the state. Not because they are beneath the interests of the state, but on the contrary, because they are too high and holy and thus beyond the competence of the state. In other words, he says the, the, the issues of what to believe and what not to believe and what is true doctrine and not true doctrine, he says that is way too important to leave, leave to civil government. That ought to belong to the church and there should be a distinction and a difference and a separation between the church and the state. Now all I've done tonight is given you a bunch of information to show you how big and deep and wide this whole issue is. Next time I'm going to try and give you a biblical defense Okay, of why Christians should support the separation of church and state and what that means for us here in America. Then, recognizing just how separate the state and church were in the Roman Empire, and they were very separate, we'll begin to unpack what Paul is teaching as he calls us to submission. Maybe let me close this way. The reason we are to submit to governing authorities is not because of anything in themselves. You're to submit to governing authorities because they're given that authority by God. It all begins with your submission to God. Uh, there is one God. 
there is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been appointed as the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords. More than anyone else, Jesus Christ is the one to whom we must submit if we're to have peace with God, if we're to have forgiveness of our sins. And then it's as we submit to Jesus that we then follow his teaching to submit to those to whom he has given authority for a time. So what is the call? It is to submit to Christ as we submit to the authorities that he's given power. All right. We have two minutes for questions. Yes. Yes. 